the Aussies are brilliant for like nicknames and stuff. So Jin Jiong is a guy that I know. So he was mm-hmm. doorbell straight away. <laughs> <laughs> and I, my last name Adcock I don't know how it hadn't come up before so it was doorbell and strap on going round Australia <laughs> <laughs> so. in this episode of the Clubhouse podcast Harry and I welcome on Todd Adcock so Todd is a PGA professional from Tunbridge Wells and in this episode we cover how he went from a full-time gym instructor to one of the leading amateurs in the world in the space of one summer, starring for the GB and Ireland squad alongside the likes of Tommy Fleetwood, Andy Sullivan and Tyrrell Hatton. He talks about the most impressive players he played with at amateur level, tips you can take away to hit the ball longer straight away and he also goes through some crazy tiger stats with us towards the end of the podcast which need to be heard to be believed. That's good. <laughs> Right, so we are we are back again with our third episode in the pod, and today we have Todd Adcock on the podcast. Um, and before we jump in, can we just take a, a moment to appreciate that Phil Mickelson, fifty, nearly fifty-one-year-old Phil Mickelson, is major champion again? Yeah, that's I'm insane, isn't it? Mm. To be fair, I was speaking to a few of my clients today, and one of them said that he was worried that he'd uh, Phil just turned into a meme. <laughs> With like, you know, like with the drop <laughs> and like the, uh, his coffee and like his shirts and stuff. And I just, and I just think uh, it's just so good, wasn't it? it? I mean, what, like, just so good to watch. Yeah, it's also all these uh, hellacious seeds and bombs or whatever he's flying down there. It's uh, great to see. And also, as well, Blandy winning. See Richard yeah. Bland on the European tour as well. First time that you're 48 years old. It's been great yeah. for the, uh, the old guys. I know that was, I mean, that was unreal. I didn't realize that. Um, I think it was something like 400, nearly 470 starts on mm. tour. And yet, because he was up there so often, I always just assumed he, he must have won on tour before, you know? Um, yeah. But they were saying something like 20, like 26 or 30 second place finishes he'd had through his career or something in, in the top five around that. And you just think to actually, you know, have the, the will to go on and just keep going, even into your late 40s, is, is unreal. Yeah, I played an event and played with him a TP tour event. It must have been two or three years ago when he lost his card. Um, he sort of played a few mini tour events. And um, to have that motivation at kind of 46 to say, no, you know what, I'm going to go back. I'm going to do a year on the Challenge Tour because I want to get my card back to keep playing, where he could have had, well, a lot of guys would do, come off main tour and then go, well, I'll have two or three years of pottering about before seniors tour. He's like, no, no, I've got nothing to do. I want to get back out there. And he went back to Challenge Tour earned his card back through the Chinese tour, then came back and won. Incredible. Yeah. So that kind of um, presents like a little perfect segue into just speaking about obviously playing sort of TP tour there, playing with um, Richard Bland, who we were just talking about there in the past. So um, can you give us a little bit of a, a background there into kind of your, I guess your playing background when it when it comes to golf? Obviously, uh, I know, you know, at the amateur level, if you just kind of start off, maybe start off there and, and kind of move through to, to where we are right now. Yeah, so for me, um, I kind of played lots of junior, but never really had sort of the, the finances to venture outside the county. So did a lot of county stuff. Um, lost, didn't lose interest, but kind of you get to kind of 18, 19, you're out at work, you're not being able to put as many hours in. So I actually got into um, the sort of fitness side. I worked in gyms for about four years, did my MVQ level two and just kind of went down that road for a bit. Then got back into playing early 20s, probably 22, 23, 
Um, first year got back was player managed to win the county Sussex Am. Top. Was that you? Did you did you, did you um, stop playing golf and then started working in a gym like as a PT or? Yeah, so I did. I did my gym instructor level two, and then did a few other sort of courses. Um, so I did a little bit of PT, dabbled a little bit, but mainly sort of gym work, and that was kind of how I was financing myself at the time. I still played, but I wasn't sort of. It was more social golf. I didn't really play. I played like club matches and that kind of stuff. But I didn't really play anything sort of big. Um, and then got back into going. So you know, I missed the golf a bit now. Got back playing again. Had a good year. Won. Um, I won the Pearly down at Bogner. Uh, the Churchill and Neville, which are there, a couple of men's opens, and then one Sussex Am at Crowborough that year. Um, and then actually, one of the guys at the golf club turned around and said, "You know what? You just you haven't had a chance to really get out there. I'll go. I'll help you a little bit." So I entered three events that year when I was 23, I think. I played the Brab. I played the South of England, as it was then at Walton Heath and English Am, and finished 12th from the Brab. Six from the south of England and won the English Am from nowhere. So that kind wow, of completely skyrocketed me. Yeah. So literally, I've gone from being like, I don't know, county golfer to by the August, I was standing on the first tee at Muirfield, leading out the team and home, home ints as English champion. So it was like crazy wow. just how it sort of had a mega yeah. week and just skyrocketed me, really. Um, what was the, um, is it all stroke play or is the last round, is there any match play in that? Or? So you got 288 start of the week. You play two rounds of stroke play. Top 64 make the match play. And then from there, it's knockout match play down. So I was at uh, Woodall Spa, we played. So we obviously played the Hodgkin was all the match play. And we played the Bracken for one round of medal. Um, and then, yeah, so it was like a couple of rounds. Of medal. I think I finished 14th in the qualifying. And I played played really well that week. For me... My biggest advantage there, especially around that Hodgkin course, was I was a long hitter back then. And um, I had this two Mizuno bladed two iron and it was really fast and firm. So I could just hit these flat two irons where other guys were hitting drivers. I could be just hitting two irons and it really, really helped me um, and just had a had a mega week. Um, and it ended up, like I said, I think I had 18 Monday, 18 Tuesday, 18 Wednesday, 36 souls Thursday. 36 holes Friday and then a 36 hole Friday on Saturday like nine rounds in like six days yeah yeah it's almost like I imagine uh the um the gym work that you'd done came in handy there (laughs) that kind of endurance (laughs) needed to do a bit more cardio rather than just being the typical like weights junkie for a little while in your early 20s I want the mirror mirror (laughs) muscles that's what I was going for at the time I think a few more uh, spin classes (laughs) (laughs) definitely but that's so that's, I mean, was I right in in reading that from that English amateur win, you climbed to number eight in the amateur world rankings? Was that right? Yeah, got to eighth in the world. That's uh, my best sort of ranking there. So straight away from that, after English Am, played home ints. Um, did well there, played, um, won a couple of matches there. Then me and Andy Sullivan went out to Australia to play uh, the Federal Am. We got sent out literally for a week. We flew in, we left the UK Saturday night arrived Monday jet lagged to hell so went and played nine holes as you kind of do um and then yeah I think we teed up in the pro-am like the next day or something and then played four rounds and then flew back straight after so we literally went all the way to Oz for a week um we had a good week I uh I think Sully finished 12th I had a good round and finished fourth um so that kind of from there got on a bit of a run 
and, uh, and played pretty well from there. And then 2009, played pretty nicely, but I made a few swing changes. I started working, obviously, with the guys um, that had a, access to a lot of bigger names, coaches like Graham Walker was part of the squad. Dave Ridley was um, leading the squad at that time. Um, Brian Hemmings was a great psychologist. So I did a lot of work with those guys and just to try and, I guess, kind of harness what I had a little bit. Um, got sent back out to Australia in 2010 for the winter. So they did a trip where I got a phone call in November to say, right, we want you to go out to Oz. We've got a family to put you up. You'll be based on the Melbourne Sandbelt. We want you to be there for five months. Do you want to go? And you're like, well, I've got, got nothing better to do. Might as well go. <laughs> were, you, were you still working at the gym at the time? Were you working at all? Not? Yeah, yeah. And I was still working at the gym. So I was having to sort of like really sort of juggle things a little bit. Um, it was, I was all 2009. I was still working. I think it was 2010 when I went out to Oz. That's when I kind of said, look, it was getting to a point where because the, the amateur season was getting busier and busier that, uh, especially PT wise. I mean, if, if you're working with clients, they want regularity and they deserve it as well. So I wasn't able to sort of provide that. So I stepped back and just did a few gym shifts here and there to try and keep some money coming in. Um, but luckily if you're at the time, if you're in that kind of England elite squad, then um, they helped you out and, and funded you a little bit. You weren't allowed to, as an amateur, you're not allowed to earn any money to profit from it, but you can have your expenses paid. So I just okay. kind of did a bit to keep me ticking over. Um, was living at home at the time because I was young 20s and stuff so I didn't really have that many expenses so it was okay um, and then like I say went out to Oz for, for five months I was out there in the end um, played I think the deal was I kind of went out there and for the first two months was the end of the Aussie season so travelled around Oz a fair bit um, playing like Aussie Am went to Tasmania played Tasmanian Amateur uh, New South Wales so I had a real kind of nice tour around there on the who basis did you, um, that who did you travel around with Todd? Were you on your own or? No, Trevor around. So one of the guys at the golf club was a real kind of elite amateur Korean lad called Jin. Um, it was quite funny actually because the Aussies are brilliant for like nicknames and stuff. So Jin Jiong is a guy that I know. So he was doorbell straight away. <laughs> <laughs> and I, my last name Adcock, I don't know how it hadn't come up before. So it was doorbell and strap on going around Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh so, my god strappers has lasted quite a few years now so that's sort of stuff. that um, is brilliant I'm gonna, to, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna have to change now what you show up on like instagram yeah. socials that's it. Have to change, my, change my handle i think when i i'll tell you what you've got away with that for the first 24 years of your life didn't you that's oh that. yeah massively how at school that never came up or anything like that yeah but um, yeah, actually, with Jim, I mean, he came when we came back over later in 2010. We came back. He came back over here and ended up winning the British Am. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So he had a great so. time. First trip over. Then he got into the Masters and going on from there. He struggled a little bit after that, but yeah, he um, he did really really well after that. Yeah. So what age? Uh, so so this was 2010. Yeah. Um, mm. What age did you start playing professionally then? Uh, I didn't turn pro. So I, I turned pro in 2012. So when I came back from um, Australia in 2010, I came back, had some good finishes. I was playing, that's probably when I was playing my, my very best. Um, I was kind of just kind of waiting for that win, if you like. I was simmering under the boil. So I finished fourth in the St Andrews Links. I finished, um, I think, top 10 in the Brab. 
I'd finished fourth two or three times out in Australia as well in like Tasmanian Amateur and a couple of other bits. Um, and then the gutting one for me was at St Andrews final qualifying, three spots, finished fourth there as well uh, to get in the Open 2010 at St Andrews. So I was kind of like, oh, God, you know what? I just got to keep keep mm. playing and I'll be all right. And mm. then um, started to get a bit of a sort of twinge in my left wrist. And then before I knew it, I was out for 10 months. So I got wow. an injury then. So from probably August time, 2010, to I got back playing again April the following year, really. So that's kind of what uh, halted me in my tracks a little bit as an amateur. Mm. Um, just because you go through normal channels. So for me, I sort of didn't really know what's going on. Went to the doctor about it. And uh, you go to get an x-ray and it takes you six weeks to get the results. Six weeks to then say, well, we need an MRI now. So it was really kind of, six months before I really knew what was going on um and at the time I uh yeah so was, yeah sort of six months and I was going on at the time I was kind of I don't know you'd be pretty frustrated about it all and England had well I'd lost my spot in the team at that point as well so a lot of sort of funding and stuff had gone got back 2011 when the wrist was better had a good finish at Lytham finished top 10 there um Again, finished fourth in the Open again. Open final qualifying 2011. So that was a gutting one. And then um, made home internationals again that year at County Sligo. And uh, me and Tyrrell both got food poisoning. So we pretty much had to toss up a coin for who could leave the toilet the longest. So, yeah, so I got the short straw on that one. So, yeah, I ended up going to Sligo and not playing. How did you recover with your wrist? What did you do? And what was that one so it was just a repetitive strain. It was just from, I had the winter in Australia. It, like, I didn't really have an off season practicing like every day, um, doing loads of work. So it wasn't uh, surgery. It wasn't uh, anything kind of major. It was a um, bit of rest, ultrasound, and then a bit of physio to kind of get back going again once I'd done that and kind of strengthen the area up again. So it was just, I think I had a few knock-on effects kind of 2012, 2013 from it. But it was more a case of where the ligament had obviously become a little bit weak and I needed to sort of strengthen the area around it to protect it a bit. And for me, I found it was a little bit technique based. So as soon as I got a little bit cupped, flicking at it a little bit, then um, that's a trait for me where my wrist would start to play up. So I kind of that's where I kind of put it down to a lot. A lot of um, practice on very hard soil. So did you did you have to change your swing at all to obviously deal with that? that you know, you mentioned the cupping there, the extension and things like that. Um, you know, did did that kind of lead to, to swing changes that needed to be made to sort of deal with that? Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, at the time, even if I was trying to strengthen it in the gym, as long as my wrist was kind of my, my sort of wrist and back of my hand was kind of in line with my forearm, I'd be OK, wouldn't have any problem at all. The, the issue that I had would be in actually kind of like setting the golf clubs so that extra mm -hmm. extension. So definitely had to kind of make a few swing changes there. And, and then you get to a stage where you kind of go down a, sort of a, a slippery path really because you're starting to you're not confident in hitting the ground anymore then all of a sudden you start to make shorter swings then all of a sudden you end up flicking at it more because your body stops turning so really for me yeah. I needed to be doing more work with my body to take pressure off my wrist whereas actually you're trying to protect it so you end up doing less um, so I had a couple of years really where I sort of just struggled a little bit to kind of um, find uh, a kind
kind of technique and trust it and trust my wrist again a little bit. Because, um, again, it was lead wrist coming down, hitting the ground a lot of the time. I mean, it got to a point where literally I'd hold the golf club and I'd get it to kind of just outside my thigh. I'd have to let go of a club. I'd have a shooting pain. It, was that, it wasn't the case of I could actually hit a golf ball. I'd actually have to drop golf clubs altogether. Wow. Um, but luckily so for me, it wasn't you, a case of needing surgery. Surely for that, that for you, it just makes you want to think, right, I'll just... I don't know. It must be tough, doesn't it? Like for you, because that's your life, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? You love it. That's what you've, you've, you've sort of like grown up doing. That's who you are. And then all of a sudden you can't do it. It's tough, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And especially because I was sort of like really riding a wave at the time. I was like, you know what? I'm just, I just, I'm knocking on the door here. I'm really, I saw a few sponsors, a few things lined up for um, the end of 2010 to kind of turn pro then. I wasn't interested in waiting around for World Cup in 2011. I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm playing good here. I want to hit the ground running and go to Q school and, and push on. Um, so, yeah, so that was frustrating. Um, and like I say, I mean, 2011, I came back and played pretty steady, even though there was a few niggly problems with it. I still managed to play pretty well. I did um, European tour school at the end of that year, got through stage. I think I finished fourth again, stage one, got through OK, just missed out stage two in Spain. Um, and then it got to a point where end of 2011, even though I was kind of picked home internationals, um, I obviously didn't play, unfortunately, because it wasn't very well, but uh, the England team kind of said that I wasn't going to be in the squad for the following year. And I just kind of thought, well, that's no point. I'm just going to turn pro and go for it. Um, so I, I turned pro, went to Q school for Euro Pro, um, did that. But again, the hard thing there as well is where your sponsors kind of aren't there that were there before. Again, your self-funding. Um, I did. I mean, the, the members at the Neville have been really supportive. I did a golf day there that raised a little bit of money to kind of get me started in 2013 on um, the Euro Pro, but at the time they they had less money in the pot. So I think I finished sixth in my first event and picked up maybe a grand, but it cost me 800 quid to play. Mm. Um, and then the following week I finished tied 12th. Um, and this is out of fields of like 160 odd fields. I, I played pretty well, um, but I finished tied 12th as a 10 way tie for 12th and picked up 450 quid. So now I've finished 12th and 6th and I'm I'm a few hundred quid down, let alone earning anything. So yeah. that kind of little bit of money you raise goes quite quickly. Um, and from there on, I had a couple of years of having a, a full card for EuroPro, but playing four events out of 15. So after that, I kind of went, right, you know what, this I'm, I'm half playing, I'm half working, doing odd jobs. I need to kind of, I'm getting sort of pushing 30 now, I need to kind of get on and, and work out what my path's going to be and what I'm going to do. And I've always really enjoyed coaching, whether it be sort of the PT side of it or um, the gym instructing or, or golf. So I um, decided to do my PGA and um, I've just finished that now. So now I'm at a stage where I can kind of um, blend coaching and get back into my playing a bit. So you mentioned there that, you know, recently you've transitioned in, into the coaching side of things and um, something that, was you know quite obvious there uh from you know social social media and then harry and i came up and, and had a lesson with you was uh a real focus on being able to increase club head speed and um you know really obviously not you know not just specializing in that area but getting a real great understanding of of the golf swing and, and how power and speed is created within that what kind of prompted you to to sort of sort of walk down that avenue a little bit in terms of, of you know what you were how you were kind of addressing your coaching 
So I think for me, I'd always been a long hitter growing up. It was always something that was my big advantage over other players. Um, and then going through injuries and going through sort of not playing that much, I'd really kind of found that I was pitching it up against guys that I'd normally be sort of knocking it way past and I was struggling to keep up. And I'm kind of going, actually, I, I played, that time I played the TP tour with um, Richard Bland. Sully was playing that year. Andy Sullivan played um, with Fred Dewsbury in the group behind. And I was kind of looking, I'd always been, I don't know, 15, 20 yards in front of Andy, sort of growing up and, and all the team stuff. We played quite a lot of golf together. And all of a sudden, I was kind of looking at where he was hitting it, where I was hitting it, going, well, hang on a minute. It was only a few years ago that we were playing together. And now you're like, you're sending it miles past where I was. And I kind of wanted to go, well, where, well, how have I lost my speed? What's kind of gone on here? And why am I um, shorter than I used to be? And kind of understand it a bit more. Also, for me, I found that I would hit my short irons quite a long way relative to, let's say, tour average. But the longer the club got, the more that I'd lose my advantage. And I kind of just wanted to really understand why that was and, and what was kind of going on. Um, so lockdown as well, it's obviously been been tough for a lot of us in the golf industry, not able to work, but it gave me loads of time just to kind of almost go back to school, just do loads of online training, reach out to a load of other pros. There's been a great community at the moment of pros actually sharing knowledge rather than keeping everything to themselves. So I've really kind of tapped into that, made a lot of connections, a lot of good friends through the way, did, doing a lot of work with um, a chap called Steve Furlonger, who uses the GASP 3D plates, which Bryson's been using with Chris Como a lot and just um, understanding that more. I use um, a body track pressure map myself, um, doing a lot of stuff as well with Lee Cox, who's a really awesome, awesome coach, really great at like long drive stuff. So he's got three... Uh, world long drive champions that he coaches probably Joe Miller being most famous at the moment um, so yeah reached out to those guys just to kind of get an understanding as to for kind of I guess personal reasons for myself to kind of get back if I wanted to get back playing again which now my PGA is done I'm sort of focused on playing the region a bit more and getting my own game back up to scratch I wanted to kind of say right I know I want to be sending it out there again rather than patting it around um, and yeah just just a intrigue really that I could then pass on to clients and also try and specialise a little bit, sort of branch out in different avenues rather than kind of being a bit of a, a jack of all trades. Whilst I'll have a good base knowledge of a lot of stuff, I really wanted to kind of delve into an element that really interested me because I kind of think, well, if you're interested in something, then if it's your passion, you're really going to mm. be good at it because mm. you've got that, that, that drive. How, how long, so you say that like, it's probably the last year that you've been trying to pick up your club head speed. Is that is that about about right? About the last year, did you say? Probably even shorter than that to a degree. I mean, last year I did a bit with. So I worked with Steve. I wanted to go and reach out to him to kind of get some information as to what was going on, kind of in the ground. I'd, I'd work with Body Track a little bit, and Gas being an incredible system um, for information, and, and Steve's done a great job in in learning how to really use it and put it across. I wanted to get some kind of measurements as to what's kind of going on. Um, so I reached out to him probably after the first lockdown. I probably saw him maybe end of July, something like that, to kind of get a, 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 my, my first lesson. So we looked at a little bit of stuff last summer and I definitely picked up a little bit last summer. Um, but the big thing for me in learning actually has actually been in the last six weeks, eight weeks or so after the last lockdown, because I came out of um, this lockdown probably about six, six seven weeks ago. Um, 
got on the flight scope that I've got and I'd lost <clears> 10 <throat> miles an hour clubhead speed on my driver since last summer from coming out of lockdown. Wow. Which again, if you look at, I don't know, mile an hour, let's say two, 2.2 miles an hour ball speed per mile an hour clubhead speed, it's over 20 yards carry from last mm, summer. Yeah. And again, a lot of that's going to be being out of the gym. Normally I'd be in the gym a couple of times a week. So strength had gone down. Obviously, you're locked in. I haven't, I haven't got the, the living in a flat at the moment, so I haven't got uh, an outdoor area or anything to kind of hit any balls or or practice in that time. So um, it's been a big project for me that I was like, right, if I'm going to get playing again this summer, I need to get back up to speed again. So, um, yeah, it's been really kind of putting a lot of what I'd kind of learn into practice for myself. And I think it's a great thing to do for myself because then I can empathise a lot more with clients and I can sort of test stuff and different things will work for different people. But if you can go through that process yourself, then it's a great thing to have when you're trying to then teach someone else to go through it because you can say, well, look, I understand how you feel. Yeah. 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 I think when we, when we, um, like myself, like I, I don't, I just play socially like uh, with the guys most Thursdays. And um, I, but I still have a lesson like every four or five weeks with the same guy that I've seen for probably about 10 years. And obviously we came up to you and had a session on the, on the body track stuff. And it's always, I just think it's, um, I think you've just got to try and keep on learning. And also you've got to try and, like for me, every time I'm trying to make a swing change or something, it, it gives me a much better understanding of what my clients are going through every time I send them away with, with stuff to work on. And yeah, it's, um, yeah, I think, it, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's good. Yeah, I think as well, if you, if you learn little bits about lots of different areas and you kind of, I'm always one for trying to look at the swing as holistically as possible, like everything affects everything kind of thing. And if you've got a good, um, don't even have to have an ex expert knowledge, but if you've got a base understanding of lots of different areas, you can kind of blend them together a bit better. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I think I, I always find if someone's, like for me, like when I'm looking at someone hit the golf ball, they don't have to be doing everything right. But if they're doing something that I don't particularly like, there might be something else that we can match it up with to sort of like counteract it. So it's it's not a complete sort of swing change to make everyone swing like Adam Scott. It's uh it's doing the best of what people have got to make them uh make them enjoy their golf as much as possible. Mm. Yeah. It's that focus on the actual key areas that are going to have the most impact. And I think this is the thing is like with a lot of uh obviously amateur golfers um and obviously as a amateur golfer myself the things that I, I see is actually individuals probably focusing too much on almost changing the whole look of their swing in, in order to get better rather than actually changing on changing the smaller things that actually have all that the biggest impact just you know like yeah. the, the fundamentals in terms of alignment you know kind of grip those types of things instead people kind of want to almost go oh, I want to try and get this exact position rather than actually thinking about okay what's it look like through impact maybe that's that's you know where yeah yeah the money's made probably similar to what you do Adam as well with your clients like just making the the easy things just keeping it the easy things simple or the easy things consistent mm -hmm. like. exactly yeah exactly and I think also as well with everyone everyone's got their own kind of natural DNA of how they move how they throw something because their natural movement pattern and it may not be something that is let's say technically perfect but it's ingrained for them so if you take that away from them you start to lose their ability their naturalness with it so actually what you'd say like harry was saying there you say well okay well that's your characteristic that's how you move so all we need to do is to get at the end of the day all we've got to do is fix ball flight so if we can match that up with this then you can keep your your natural move that you've got that's instinctive to you and still get a straight ball flight and not cause a problem mm. yeah like yeah. when you look at yeah. players on tour 
there, there can be a massively different swings. Like you've got, you know, from Jim Furyk all the way through to Bubba Watson couldn't be more different in almost every stage of the swing, apart from impact where they're probably very, you know, pretty much exactly the same. And also I always say to people like, you could be standing in the clubhouse looking down the first fairway and going, oh, is, is that is that Bill? Is that Pete? Who is that? As soon as you swing a golf club, oh, I was Bill. You know, straight mm. away. It's so individual, your golf yeah. club. Even when you look at, let's <laughs> say, like when Adam Scott um, and Tiger Woods were that kind of early 2000s, really swinging it, what was sort of seen to be almost identical because Adam Scott was almost, when he started, the copycat Tiger Woods. But you could still tell the two apart Yeah. in their golf swings and then how, how they swung the golf club. They were still characteristics and traits of themselves so i think every golf swing on tour you could still put it to that individual player even though it may look very very similar um so has there been any particular like aha moments in your kind of journey towards improving your clubhead speed like where you know your knowledge has been gained and there's been certain things where you've gone wow like that's really you made a connection in your brain yeah i mean for me um definitely learning about how you use the ground so that's our big point to kind of create force and torque in the swing that's our only contact point to really turn against if you were standing on a an ice rink then you couldn't hit a golf ball you'd fall over so that's mm -hmm. our friction point if you like so definitely understanding how how you're using the ground to create power is a big thing but actually a lot of the stuff that i've had the biggest gains with of late which has been really interesting to get into is all the um the john Novacell, the tall tempo stuff and actually, for me, my biggest gain, and I guess you can look at it as kind of like low-hanging fruit, really, if you're looking at swing speed, is tempo. For me, my, my backswing tempo was too slow relative to my downswing. Um, so the biggest thing that I've been doing of late, I use a, the Tall Tempo app, and I'll be practicing with my headphones in, and all it's doing is playing a beat. And it has three, three little tones to it. The first tone is when I take the club away. The second tone is top of the backswing. third tone is impact and i've got to make sure i hit those points so it, it builds a rhythm in so for me I've, I've noticed a big big gain uh in in club head speed just through trying to swing to a certain pace mm. so i've heard it termed like a three to one ratio is kind That's of what's it. being looked for is yeah so so three times longer for the backswing as opposed to the downswing but obviously yeah. if you take that and you make you know one slower the other by definition is going to be slower yeah, and there's different rates. So it's not saying that, um, I don't know, Mrs. Smith had to swing it as fast as Bryson. It's not saying that's, that's mm. the tempo. But you might, um, I mean, Rory swings at 21.7, but Bryson swings at 18.6. You look at, um, one of the great people to look at, people looking at like long drive stuff, is check out Martin Borgmeier. I mean, he's he absolutely bombs it. He's a... Really cool stuff the, on social media as well. With the, yeah, with the yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's got the record at the moment for fastest ball speed, which I think is 231.7, I think it is, something like that, recorded on Trackman. I'm, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure we broke that a few weeks ago on Flight yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you got it on Trackman on the body track. Uh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, it, was after the, it was after our seventh hole Peronis, I think. Yeah. On the, on yeah. the par three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a great one to look at. And he, now he swings at, uh, they've actually built a new tempo for him. He swings at um, 15, no, 16 and a half, five and a half. And he's got yeah. obviously a very, very long swing. So where you're creating more, more force and more speed is by 
you're covering a longer distance quicker. And that's how you're, so rather you say, than trying to hit it harder, you're just getting everything done quicker. When you were having your bit of purple patches, sort of 2010, 11, 12, would you say that, uh, was that the main factor in what you were doing better than everyone else is that you were hitting it further? Or was there something else that you would say that was standing out in your game? Um, I'd say for me, I was, I was, I'm growing up at the Neville Golf Club and it's, it's pretty tree line, it's pretty tight. So I mm. would even, even in practice, I'd hit drivers a lot. So I was a, generally for me, I was a good driver of the golf ball. If I was strokes game off the tee, I'd do pretty well because I'd hit it, hit it quite a long way, but I played on a very tree line golf course. So I could, I could hit a fair way pretty comfortably, especially when I went away from there. Um, but I would say the biggest difference for me now compared to then was definitely, um, I mean, when you're playing, I had five cards in my hand a week. You're, you're, you're sharp. So short mm, game sharp, yeah. 10 foot and in. That was, that was my, that was where I was best. I would have said from, from compared to where I am now, compared to where I am now, I feel, I still feel like I've got my speed back up and hitting the ball well tee to green, hitting good shots, but I leave too many out on the golf course compared to what I would have done back then. And it's just really through, not necessarily technique, but just through, just not playing as much. Like when you're a full-time you know, golfer, you're going to be sharp. Is that you something don't leave you think, anything on the table. Yeah. Is that something you guys think the average amateur could gain more from, you know, when there's, there's a big disparity between when they turn up for their like Saturday medal and shoot 112 compared to when they've played, you know, midweek in their social round and shot 80, 85, you know, yeah. do you think that playing with a card in the hand actually is something that more people should do more often? Yeah, I Yeah, I think so personally. I think that's what that, this new world handicap system is kind of promoting is saying that every time you go out, you can put a card mm. in your hand and you can actually like return a score rather than um, before, you, especially as a cat one player, you had to do it in a competition. You couldn't put a supplementary score in. Yeah. So it doesn't feel I so different. It'll be more beneficial, for, um, more beneficial for amateurs as well. I think quite a, lot of, quite a lot of amateurs will turn up to a tournament and they might use a Pro V1 that day, or they might warm up where they wouldn't usually warm up, or they might do things mm. they're not usually used to doing, because it's like a special Sunday, or it's that special day. And I think that if every round matters, and every round's got a card in your hand, and you can put that in for that handicap system, I, yeah, I think it's only a good thing. I think personally, for me, one of the biggest gains I think that amateurs can get when it comes down to that kind of feel, and it's a really overlooked thing, is using the same golf ball. Oh, absolutely. I would say that I, yeah. I talk about that probably two or three times a day. Yeah. When you look at wedge, like, wedge launch conditions and how the ball's going to take off, I mean, really, you could hit exactly the same pitch shot, let's say from 80 yards, where you're trying to sort of nip one in there or try and get it close or, or try and create some control. You could have exactly the same dynamics, but a hard, let's say a hard top flight or range ball compared to a Pro V1, can vary up to 10 degrees in launch angle and reduce or take off at less than half the spin with a harder ball. So if you're using different golf balls all the time, it's reacting differently all the time. And then you take that to say, oh, okay, you know what? I had a bad day, so I didn't putt very well. Well, take it a step further back, look at stats, that even the PGA Tour averages from three feet is 97%. From six feet, it's yeah. 67 so if you can chip it three foot closer, you've got a thirty percent better chance of making par or making up and down. Yeah, and a lot of the times mm. Dave's lost his top flight, uh, lost his Pro V one by the fourth hole, gets the top flight out, and starts fighting badly. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I do. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Is there water on this hole? Give us some top flight. Yeah, yeah, it What's is. Your, um... Todd, who's the who's... so me and Adam were talking about different questions we wanted to ask you. One of the ones that came up was basically we'd quite like to know who is the best player you played with. So I thought that was the most fun question, and also as well, who's the player that you've hit with, that you've played with that hits it the furthest? Um, so, kind of, is it? It depends if it's kind of best player I've played with at the time, or best player, or most turned into the best player. So I'd say for me, of of the era, like I mean, our old squad, like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, ten, would have been like uh, Fleetwood, uh, Pepperell, Hatton. You would have had um, Sully in there, you know, Tom Lewis, like some really, really good players. Hell of a squad, isn't it? Yeah, at, at the yeah. time though, for me, and I always say this, Sam Hutsby at the time was yeah. was was the, was the man he, for my money. I mean, obviously Tommy was a great ball striker, um, a lot of really, really talented players, but it may just be that Sam was having his purple patch. But I mean, you'd see him. We'd, I mean, we'd have loads of training weekends. We'd be in Spain three weekends of the winter. We'd be playing lots of events together, do lots of like walk up training, that kind of stuff. Um, but but for my money, Sam was always at the time head and shoulders above the others if I had to put money on someone like, doing really well and Sam he got his tour card he, he, he did really well I think he's, he's now doing his PGA at the moment um, he's been a member of Lip Hook talking about that for a long time um, but yeah at the time he was really really impressive um, another mm. one Matt Haynes I mean Matt was such a yeah. talented golfer really really was I mean he won won the Live at 19 played World Cup at Marion at 19 um, just really really talented Um but um, but yeah, I mean they're, they're all. I mean it's such a strong squad. When you look mm. at the guys that have come out of that, you look back through some of the old photos and kind of go, well, it's kind of like a who's who of English golf, really. Yeah, and I'm just see most of them somewhere. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. did, uh, did Tommy Fleetwood always have that finish on his golf swing? Because he always does. Yeah. That. So Tommy, Tommy always used to struggle with like an overdraw, if you like. So it was always a kind of method yeah. for him. He worked with um, Tomo for a long time um, to try and kind of just kind of just sort of make the face more passive a little bit and his release a bit more passive on the way through and i think as they went on and went on and worked just found that you know what i don't lose any distance doing this i control ball flight better my efficiency is so much better with that finish than it is on a full swing so why don't i just put it in play Mm. yeah have you been surprised to see i was gonna say have you been surprised to see uh terrell hatton um obviously push on in the way he has um, the thing is with Tyrrell is Tyrrell's got um, better and better and better from, from what I've seen over the years with, with his long game. He's been really, really impressive. He's a real good ball striker now, picked up a lot of distance. But Tyrrell was always one who was very gutsy. Like, I mean, even as an amateur, he qualified for the Open once or twice um, when he had to go through final qualifying. He, if, he, if it was sort of like you needed to pitch up and hold a putt on the last, he was a good man for it. He'd put some good money on him. Uh, the others so he's always been very very gritty in his golf and um would always again get the most out of his rounds well i am i am done with questions apart from maybe one uh what's what's do you reckon the one thing a golf could take away from this podcast one thing that would potentially help bring their speeds up kind of straight away something they could do on the range um on the range so i definitely say that Whatever you do, clubhead speed-wise, it's all about efficiency and getting it to the ball. 
So it's all about ball speed. So really, when you're looking at optimising your distance, isn't about swinging at 120 miles an hour. It's getting the ball to take off faster. So it'd be getting to, um, like I say, a, a driver fitting, a correct fitting in your driver to get the maximum out of it. Um, and really kind of the impact factors of making sure you're hitting up on the golf ball a little bit more um, because you're hitting up on it. You can let your, or your swing path go to the right a little bit as well. Um, but yeah, upward angle of attack, get a driver that really fits you just so you can optimise launch and spin and you'll get the most out of what you've already got before you start adding club head speed. Um, but to answer your question as well, maybe you're saying about who the, the longest player I played with back in the day. Um, like hands down, um, Wallace Booth, Carly Booth's brother. Oh, he wow. could really? seriously send it. Like, and it'd be one like, I'd, I'd consider myself at the time like sort of a long, longish kind of hitter. Get it up in the air a little bit. Used to play like a bit of a 10, 15 yard draw. So get a bit of extra out of that as well, which I sort of learned to control over the years. But like Wallace growing up in Scotland, I mean, the background for all of them, like Wallace, even now, he could stand and do a standing back flip. You see like pictures on Instagram and stuff and videos of Carly doing it up and down like tee boxes and stuff. Wallace would be exactly the same. The power they've got in in their like, little fast twitch fibers they've got in, in their genes is just incredible. Mm. I think their dad was European wrestling champion. They've got a gym at home. Like Wallace was a wrestling champion of Scotland, I think. Um, did powerlifting out in uh, America. Um, just immensely strong. Not not necessarily a big guy, but just super quick. Um, but he could hit a ball that would carry 320 back in the day and probably peak height would be about 50 foot it was just a missile mm. the only person i've actually played golf with who split a golf ball on the golf course <laughs> really he, hit, he was doing he, honestly he was doing wow. so well he was like he was like having this because again when you've got extra speed like you've got the tendency to kind of lose it a bit right and a bit left so but when he was on it was just unbelievable to watch and um yeah, he hit one. I think he hit two iron off. I can't think which tee it was. It was in the St Andrews Links, I think. And he was doing all right. And this thing just went off like some funky directions. I was like, wow, that's a bit weird. And even he went, that's not quite right. Anyway, got down there and the golf ball was kind of just sitting there like this. <laughs> so he'd, go, he'd go back to the tee and kind of replay it. Wow. I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, but yeah, he, he could like... I think that they were playing that, like that um, wasn't his top flight, was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Molotov. I think we were playing like Kings Barnes in the Jacques Leguise, I think, which was a sort of uh, GBI versus Europe match, and um, all the guys were kind of hitting drivers um, up to getting like fifty yards short of the green, and he knocked it on with three wood. Um, there was one <laughs> year, I one year I played the Lytham Trophy. Um, and it was the, probably the most win I've ever played golf in. So the first hole at Lytham, normally prevailing wins a little bit down on the front nine. And I think first day, it was like a 193 par, par three. I'd hit seven iron in the first round, pretty good middle of the green. This second round came out, I hit three wood to the first. Jesus. And of course, like RNA put your ball back tees. So you could literally barely reach the first few par fours or kind of into off the left, out of bounds, down the right. You try yeah. to get this low raking snap hook everywhere to try and keep it in play. <laughs> and we get to the sixth, which is normally a par five, and they turn it into a par four for the open for the, the um, living trophy. And like, can't even sniff it, can't get anywhere near it until you're still hitting like medium iron in for your third. And Wallace hit driver three iron to 10 foot and hold it for eagle or hold it for birdie at the time. 
just <laughs> incredible to watch. Amazing. I've um, I've got a, a few friends that are members at Carnoustie, and there's a couple of guys that I go out there a couple of times a year and have a game with. One of the guys uh, plays off plus five, and I just think that those Scottish guys have just got something else in them with that ball flight. It's just mm. they can just take it off and keep it there for, for however long they want it to. Like a little frozen rope. Yeah. 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 So we got some. Did you get some some tiger stats, Harry? I've got a few. Yeah. 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 I, I grabbed a few as did well. Did you get some? Amazing. Because this, I mean, this could have been a podcast all of itself, but uh, if this ends up being I, I too long, I'm, I might split. I might split them if it's too long, and I'll just split them into two separate podcasts. Yeah. Um, nice. Okay. Cool. So crazy tiger stats, and there's so so many of these. Like I was doing a little dig in uh, earlier on today, and to be honest, I could have probably come up with something that was about. I could probably add a book, a whole book length mm. worth of this. So. Uh, Harry, we'll get you to start, mate. What's your what's, what's one your uh, one of your crazy tiger stats? My uh, first first great tiger stat is so Phil Mickelson in his heyday had a seven point five percent chance of winning every tournament that he went into, and Tiger had a twenty five percent chance of winning every tournament that he entered in his heyday, basically. So every tournament, every four tournaments Tiger entered, he was going to win one of them. That's the stat. That's my first that's, crazy tiger stat. Did that's you hear that? Insane. I actually think as well, that's not even just in his heyday. That's across his whole career, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's mad as well, considering he only entered majors, WGCs, Mm. players, the big, big, big events. Like, everyone there is top 50 and only sort of top 50. It's not like he's pitching up to sort of play like Italian Open or like one of the sort of Tenerife or something. He's he's playing like against the best. Yeah. Nice. I've got another one as well, just before, before. Let's let's go let's go let's go round in a little a little circle with these. Oh, okay. So I got one. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna take them all. Yeah, no, I don't want. So one I saw, which kind of blew my mind a little bit, was from '97 to 2013, and the guys need 90 plus rounds to count. Okay, Woods's combined score in majors for that era was 126 under par. Okay. Now the next best was Steve Flesh, who was <laughs> yeah, exactly, who was only 251 shots behind him. <laughs> oh my God. Mickelson was in third as well at 128 over par when Woods was 126 under par for that period. Wow. We were talking about this the other day. As well. Can you imagine guys like Chris DeMarco? What he would like? Yeah, the what ifs, like the what ifs of oh. that that era. There's like so many one would have. Like, yeah. I mean, every major would have just been so wide open. Ernie yeah. would have had well, like about eight or nine majors comfortably without Tiger. Yeah. Yeah, oh, and, yeah. and then yeah. you're talking about Ernie as being one of the greatest of all time from from doing that in. Yeah, in a in a very competitive era, like you know, I know the the how competitive it is now, but I think if you drop peak Tiger into this era, it's still it becomes all almost a bit of a everyone else is playing second fiddle again. Yeah, yeah, best of the rest, isn't it? So, my one is uh, so on May twentieth, two thousand one, Tiger built biggest ever lead in the world rankings 
So at that time, he was averaging 32.33 points per, uh, per event. Um, number two at that point was Phil Mickelson, and he was averaging 12.93. So he was 19.4 points ahead of Phil Mickelson. So when you consider that to actually get onto the world rankings, you would just have to average more than zero. <laughs> there was a bigger gap between Tiger and Phil and Phil and the the very last person on the amateur world uh, on the uh, world golf rankings. Madness. And to give some like context to that, Johnson is the world number one at the minute with ten point one five ranking points per average. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't believe I, I, there was one I was looking at these stats. One that I looked at, but I, I didn't think was that impressive. But I, I mean, obviously, it is. Is the length of time that he was world number one for? Yeah. And I think it was the first time he did it. It was for five years, and then I can't remember who knocked him off. Might have been maybe BJ Singh. Yeah, mm. yeah. And then after that, he was he was uh, world number one for five week, five years and seventeen days, weeks or something like that. It was just it was the, it was more the second time, and uh, yeah, just to to perform for that well for that amount of time is just with. With and even like through injuries, through whatever, it's just so so good, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it would be so it would be so good if he could come back and beat Nicholas's record. It would be so. I, I mean, I don't, and it's a big ask, obviously, but I'd love to see it. I would love to see it. I think I think the the benchmark that should be used now is if he comes back and makes a cut in a PGA Tour event. That's incredible. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, Harry, you've used yours up there, mate. Todd, what you got? I was kind of leading on to that a little bit. Same sort of thing. So, he's talking about, like, say, how many weeks he's been, sort of, or how many years he's been, sort of, consecutive world number one. Now, if you have total weeks that he's been number one in the world, it's 683 weeks as world number one, which is about over 13 years as a world number one <laughs> holding it. Now, if you look at DJ at the moment, He's currently world number one. He's third in the total weeks of being world number one. In the modern era, kind of, it's been recorded. However, he's still 10.6 years as world number one behind Tiger. (laughs) (laughs) So he'd have to be world number one now for another 10 and a half years. He'd have to be world number one to catch Tiger. He's been number one for, for 131 weeks compared to 683 and he's third in the list to think about he'd need to be in his mid 40s and have never lost it at that point (laughs) i think it's the normans in between them too greg norman yeah yeah Yeah. it is so uh what's another one ah okay so tiger's 2000 season which is an absolute gold mine for these crazy tiger stats but in his 2000 season he beat he beat the field average in every single round of golf he played. <laughs> so, yeah. So, if you, you're taking that on, that's, I mean, it makes sense because he obviously made every single cut for about four years. I was just going to say, yeah. he didn't make a cut, did he? He didn't miss a cut for like however long. That's just, yeah, never got a Friday flight home. <laughs> Always getting a check. Right, okay. Nice. I've got a great one. I've got so this is good so every tournament that Tiger plays in the average PGA Tour player performed 0.8 of a stroke worse when Tiger was playing 
Oh, the intimidation yeah. factor. Yeah. yeah. Huge. Now, I don't, I don't know how that's... I, I found that on Google. I don't know how that's... Measured. It does sound <laughs> a little bit suspicious. But, I can, but what I'm talking about is that intimidation factor of like, have you, you, how many times have you seen like someone just crumble as Tiger starts to come up that leaderboard? Like it, like, like it just happens way too often. So that must be, that must be true. And even to talk about being paired with him in the last group on the last day, people would almost like, almost thought well, like bogey the last because they had a better chance being a shot worse and being in the group behind him yeah. or in front of him rather yeah. than be playing with him. Diving into one of these, I saw that it was something like after it was uh, after fifty-four holes, he'd had held the lead like fifty-five to sixty times or something like that, and he'd won uh, something like ninety-nine percent of those of those tournaments when he was leading or co-leading going into that final round across that many events. It's just unreal. Yeah, I remember listening to a really good podcast with Robert Roth, and he was saying about. He went into the last round in Dubai playing with Tiger. And he said, there is nothing in me that thought I was going to win. Like, I just thought I was there for the ride. Like, like <laughs> you imagine going out on that final day. I think he was, I think he was leading. And he beat, obviously, he beat Tiger on the final day. But there's nothing in him that thinks he's going to beat Tiger Woods. Like, growing up, like Tiger Woods. And uh, getting paired with him on the final day. I mean, you probably are going to think, probably coming second here, aren't I? Third, maybe. <laughs> yeah, what you hear people it would be, talk about a lot with last day is the fact that um, it's all the crowds, like the amount of people that are there. And as soon as Tigers finish the hole, they're all racing to the next tee, or they're all racing mm -hmm. to their head to see his next shot. Now you're still there putting out. You've still got your four foot of a pile or whatever you got, and the whole like the stampede coming past you because they're all trying to get on the tee to watch Tiger bomb it on the par five next golf. It's kind of getting used to that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And it's it's not like you can even get away from the fact you would know that the crowd are all there for Tiger. You know, yeah. you, you're literally oh, battling, against, <laughs> you're battling against 6,000 people out there. You feel like Stuart Singh yeah. playing against Tom Watson in the open. Yeah. Player, yeah. Uh, Do you remember, did you remember his speech at the end when he was like, I, I was the only person in the world that wanted me to win? Me that. and my mum, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, it still breaks yeah. me that, that he missed that part on the last. I know. Oh, where was that again? Was that at um... uh, Turnberry, wasn't it? Yeah, Turnberry. I can't remember. Yeah. I think it was Turnberry anyway. It was, just, it was a three part off the back of the green, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Mm. I think he flushed his second shot as well and got, um, a, bit of a, yeah. and got a big bounce. Only just went over the back and he was kind of decided, do I chip? Do I putt? What do I do? It was just, I think he kind of said, like, by that point, I was. Like I was obviously running on fumes, but just knackered. I lo I love it when you see an old boy have a bit of a run for it. Like I remember, um, I remember going to Birkdale and watching uh, Greg Norman. Do you remember? I think he was leading going yeah. to the last round or something. Mm, like he that. was. His caddy was about two hundred years old, and his caddy <laughs> here carried his bag around, and it was just it was the atmosphere was just fantastic. Because I got uh, another cool one. I saw um, I don't know if it's me up, but got. Um, so Tiger is third on the all-time win list on the European Tour with 41 wins, yet he's never been a full member of the Tour. Yeah. So that's uh, counting, I guess, majors count as European Tour wins. I mean, he played like, play German Open quite a lot. He's yeah, play, like, like Deutsche Bank. Events. Yeah, that's it. H uh, the HSBCs. He used yeah. to just 
absolutely take those away every year. So he's got 41, and the next best at the time of this stats were done, uh, I thought, was Lee Westwood with 25. Uh, you think like Lee Westwood's going to stall well for years. Well done, so I've got I've got another good one actually. This one's this one's uh, really really specific actually. Um, so the first drive that Tiger hit as a pro was at the LA Open in 1996. It was with a 43 inch steel shafted driver with a 300 cc head, and it went 336 yards. <laughs> Wow. His, uh, so when reading up in like the context of this, it was his like um, his like master club fitter guy at that time, who he he basically I think kind of kept through when he was at tight list and then when he went to Nike and stuff like that. And uh, his stock swing back then with that club was about 180 mile an hour ball speed. Yeah, that's insane, isn't it? You think about yeah, that. Yeah. The, the, it, gee, I, I don't know. Sometimes you look at that and you think, I wonder, like. Obviously, with the tech and all the rest of it, like how much further he would have hit it then if he would have had a Taylor Mason, whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, they were saying that because they, they had a uh, a 50-inch driver um, that they were they were making for a, a long driver back then. And Tiger went to the range with it and um, just interested to see what he could get with it. And he was hitting plus 200-mile-an-hour ball speed with it. And this is with an old head. Yeah. Yeah, it's nuts. Isn't it? Right. I've got no more Tiger facts. That's me done. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm tapped out. I saw, uh, so Tiger went through the billion dollar earnings mark in 2009. So bearing in mind, he turned pro to in 96, 13 years to earn a billion dollars. <laughs> I, I wonder what he's on now. Insane. Uh, and yeah, now that's an actually, outside in. Yeah. Yeah. And he still hasn't got his own driver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could afford a chauffeur now, wouldn't you? No. Oh, God. Can you imagine how much easier everyone's life would have been being a Tiger fan if he'd just had a driver all these past years? First time I saw him play, I went up to watch the Open at Birkdale. Uh, Birkdale? Oh, no, at Carnoustie. And um, he was playing. And you don't really realise, but like, when you watch him on TV, he's just sort of walking around and like you, you don't really get like they sort of miss out, it's sort of entourage. But there was like eight guys all dressed with like red jackets on, all stood around the outside of him. And then when he hit, they like put their hands up in the air for everyone to stop moving, stop talking. He then hit his shot, they would carry on walking. Um, and the first shot I ever saw Tiger Woods hit, he hit his two iron, he cut it into the crown and hit this woman straight on the head. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is your finishing tiger stat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the legend is real. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit like it was a bit like seeing Mickey Mouse. Do you know, like when you think you've just only ever seen him on TV and you see him in real life, and it's just like, oh, he is a real person. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I think I think we're done, guys. We have got uh, a good hour and ten minutes there. So um, yeah, cool. we smash that. <laughs> Todd, thanks for taking the time out of your uh, your day to come on and have a chat with us. It's, good. it's uh, been wicked. Really appreciate it, mate. Cool. So, um, in terms of anyone who wants to kind of find your your sort of social media handles and that, where can they catch you? Uh, so, I mainly use Instagram or anything else. I'm on Twitter, but mainly the Instagram where I kind of go. So, it'd be at Toddy Adcock, T O D D Y A D C O C K, and then find us on there. Um, again, do 
odd little tip so they can find out a bit more about me with like I say speed training force plates that kind of stuff um, if anyone's interested in I'd say online stuff or analysis or coming to see us then just send us a DM and, and reach out really brilliant awesome, awesome. well yeah. thank you very much guys uh, cheers Todd Adam <laughs>